Your podcaster has long been impressed by cinema that presents what is outside the human sensory process. Art that conceives and presents what we literally cannot perceive. In 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick shows us what transcendence is by sending Kier Dulea through an astral rainbow fall. Christopher Nolan's Interstellar presents Matthew McConaughey in a tesseract, the three-dimensional shadow of a four-dimensional space. In Annihilation, Alex Garland samples evolution by introducing a sentient prismatic cancer that refracts and reflects the DNA of its surroundings, including that of Natalie Portman. The audience is placed in an environment that doesn't reconcile with daily life and leaves them holding on to reality, at least as they understand it, by their fingernails. The Eurodollar system is like that. Consider this legal wordfall from the Financial Stability Board. Quote, regulatory arbitrage in the presence of non-harmonized rehypothecation regimes. Or this three-dimensional shadow of offshore money by Jeff Snyder. Quote, nobody buys securities. They borrow and claim to own them. Then the client will agree to allow the dealer to repledge the very security the client is claiming to own. The already repledged security can be repledged again. In many, if not most cases, there needn't be the original client desire for this chain of repledging. If you want to know what it's like to travel through a wormhole for 18 hours in a hundredth of a second, like Jodie Foster did in Robert Zemeckis' Contact, then part one of episode 39 is for you. Parts two and three aren't the worst things in the world either. Well, this world at least. Are you on your way to a cocktail party? Do you want to be the center of attention? You can be so in three simple steps. Step number one, strike up a conversation about regulatory arbitrage in the presence of non-harmonized rehypothecation regimes. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I don't know what that means, but Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, does. Jeff, we're going to turn to you. We're going to be discussing an essay that you posted today, Friday, December 11th at Real Clear Markets. And the title of our essay is A Nonsensical Jumble of Misused Words Requires Discussion. <laughs> what? What are those words? Well, it's not really a nonsensical jumble of misused words. There are actually a specific meaning to those words, and a little do people probably realize those words and what they're referring to has been a central part, played a central part in what has unfolded over the last 13 years or so. So the point of the, the, uh, the essay, at least the overriding point, is that, yes, there's this thing called, you know, non-harmonized global repo regimes or global rehypothecation regimes that relate to repo market and collateral that most people don't aren't aware that this is a really, really big deal and at times can, can play a, a huge role in how things unfold. So it's, it's understanding this part of the world, this part of the monetary world, financial world, and, that, and the economic system that very few people ever venture into. So we're at that cocktail party, and there's 100 people there, 
And if we went around the room and we asked them, not what that meant, but what was 2008 all about? Because to find out what that phrase means, regulatory arbitrage in the presence of non-harmonized rehypothecation regimes, we need to go all the way back to 2008. And most people would say it was a mortgage crisis. Subprime mortgage crisis, right? Except, of course, uh, Ben Bernanke said in, 2000, in early 2007 that subprime mortgages would be contained. So obviously we're missing something. And what is, what is it uh, that most people think about when they think about 2008? In addition to subprime mortgages, they think, well, these subprime mortgages created enormous losses for banks. And so it created a bank panic the same way that we saw in 1929, 1930, right? It was, it was a bank panic, lots of losses, credit speculative bubble. These things always happen. Uh, and Lehman Brothers, I mean, Lehman Brothers, subprime mortgage, something about subprime mortgages created these big problems in 2008. And that was just not true. For, to begin with, there was no uh, traditional depository bank run. In fact, there were very few uh, depository failures in that respect. I mean, extremely few. It wasn't a bank panic amongst the public. It was a bank panic where banks panicked. And that's, that's really what separates what happened in 2008 from prior episodes. It was, it was certainly an episode of currency elasticity, but what was the currency that, was, that became so inelastic it created this global financial crisis? That's really where we're trying to get into. So if one of our audience members was at this party, they would say, quote, 2008 was because of proprietary write-downs other than temporary impairment. Uh, as large warehouse securities uh, that banks were holding or were stuck becoming beneficial owners of grew unstable due to severe disruptions in the marketplaces for them. That's what our audience would say. And they would mention Lehman Brothers. But you know what? I think even our audience would refer to Lehman Brothers, Inc. And in this essay, very interestingly, you introduce us to Lehman Brothers, international Europe. Jeff, what was the big difference between those two? That's the regulatory arbitrage. That's the non-harmonized part of it. Uh, when we get into what we're really talking about here is collateral and rehypothecation, repledging. And I, you know, I want to be careful here because rehypothecation, repledging have specific statutory meanings that we're going to use in an interchangeable fashion. So everybody you know, we're talking about rehypothecation and repledging kind of a, in a loose kind of a way. But essentially, you're a prime broker. Your business is to provide brokerage services to large financial clients, hedge funds, other, other money market dealers, money market participants, broker dealers, those kinds of things. You know, a hedge fund wants to buy some securities. They come to you and say, go into the marketplace and buy a U.S. Treasury force, for example. And as a broker dealer, you say, well, I would love to be able to do that for you because I'm going to make some money on the transaction, but I would like to do it. I would like to provide you with every kind of service I can. I want to make this as cheap as possible for you to be able to buy this security that you want to own because I want you to be my customer forever because we can both make money on these financial deals forever. And so what I do is I say, well, look, when you get this, you put up a minimum amount of, of investment, just enough to cover the over collateralization or haircut. I'll go into the treasury market. I'll buy this specific security, this treasury security you want to own. I'll custody it for you because you need somebody to custody this, these specific securities. And I will arrange some financing for you at the cheapest possible terms. And maybe I'll provide that financing myself. The catch is you have to let me reuse 
that security for my own purposes so that I can do all these things for you. And as a hedge fund, you say, well, what do I care? You're giving me the best possible terms so that I can speculate in whatever market I want to speculate in and do so with the most maximum amount of leverage that allows me to, you know, I, I believe, meet my uh, investment return objectives. So I'm, I'm over the moon. You want to you wanna reuse and rehypothecate my security? Go ahead. Do whatever you want to do, Mr. Dealer, as, as long as you provide me with the leverage I want to I do. And so once that happens, the dealer in this case was Lehman Brothers. We're talking about Lehman Brothers. They said, well, to give you the best possible terms, most leverage, the cheapest funding, all this stuff, I'm going to take this security and I'm going to transfer it from Lehman Brothers, Inc., which is the American subsidiary of Lehman Brothers' parent. I'm going to send it over to our London subsidiary, Lehman Brothers International Europe. And what, why I'm going to do that is because these repledging, rehypothecation rules that are in place in the United States, there pretty much aren't many or any in London. So I can do a lot more repledging and rehypothecation offshore than I can onshore. And so if you want the best possible terms for your speculative investment, that's what I need to do. I got to transfer this security to London so that I can reuse it and repledge it and rehypothecate it over there. And of course, the hedge fund again says, knock yourself out. Do whatever you got to do as long as I make out too. But it's not really London, is it? You say it's offshore, but we'll think, well, that's... You know, Britain's not really offshore. That's a real, that's not the Cayman Islands, not Gibraltar, it's not the Seychelles. But it's not really in London, is it, Jeff? It's a specific part of London where this is taking place. Yeah, it's the city of London, which is uh, the old Roman settlement, I believe. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a quirky place in that, you know, the Queen of England has to ask permission to enter the city. The city of London has always been the mercantile heart of the British Empire. And so it was always given sort of a, a special privileges. In fact, I believe it's run by a guild. It's not even run by an uh, actual you know, government in the same way that uh, we think of today. But the point is, you know, it's, 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 it is an offshore island within London, and it's, it's offshore in the respect that British regulators have said, look, if you're an international bank or even a British bank, and you want to set up shop in the city of London, so long as your clients are outside the Britain, we don't care what you do. We won't regulate you. You just do whatever the hell you want to do. We just want all these finance jobs. We want all these big banks to open up their, uh, you know, set up, to, to put up a shingle and in the city of London and, and uh, make London a financial center like it used to be in the, in the glory days of Britain. So in, in that, in the functional respect, in a de facto respect, or that's, it actually is offshore in the respect of your, you know, regulations and how things are actually operated. That's right. And I think Luxembourg would qualify as well and Liechtenstein. So many people, when they think of offshore, they think of an island, but it's really more of the regulatory framework, which is what we're talking about here, regulatory arbitrage. It's the same thing in the Cayman Islands. You're welcome to come here and perform all sorts of banking functions as long as it's not facing Cayman Island residents. So earlier in your point there, you were saying a lot of things. And I think people may have started to lose their hold on reality. It's a little bit like quantum mechanics. Once you dive into this area of finance, things stop making sense. And at one point, it sounded like you were saying that the hedge fund wasn't even owning their security. They were borrowing the treasury that they could then speculate on. And then also that the bank itself would then repledge 
that security. So it seemed like somebody was saying they owned something, but they didn't really. And then they lent that thing out that they didn't really own to be re-lent out to several other uh, financial institutions, hedge funds, whatever it was. Is, is that right? I mean, is yeah, that's, we, that, that's the magic of it, isn't it? We've entered the fuzzy little world. And you're right that the quantum, the quantum, quantum physics, quantum mechanics uh, analogy is a perfect one because we're, we've entered a world where it doesn't make sense to people who are, <laughs> you know, the idea of capitalism and title and ownership, these, these mm-hmm. have meaning. Right. But when you when you put these into a financial context, especially this offshore financial context, those meanings start to change. It's a matter, you know, I make the, the point a lot of times about money, old commodity money versus modern money, this fuzzy money, where commodity money used to operate under property law, which is very simple, intuitive and easy, as it should be. You own something, you own something. Right. But when you get into financial law and financial practice, there's separation between title, ownership, usage rights, and all sorts of other kind of concepts where things get stretched and moved and, and changed and altered and evolved and all sorts of things that make it, it's, it's, it, it, is, it may sound unfamiliar to people who aren't, aren't uh, maybe experiencing these things for the first time. And you're right, when it comes to the hedge fund, the hedge fund may not actually be buying the security, but it takes title. It takes ownership of the security. However, in doing so, in this arrangement that we've described with the prime broker, the broker says, yes, you have title to this security, but you're giving me specific rights to repledge and reuse it as if for anybody else in the line, they think it's mine. So what happens is dealers take in securities, lots of, you know, not just treasuries, but all sorts of other securities. And then they use these securities that aren't, they aren't theirs. The title belongs to their customers. They use them for their own purposes. And again, the reason is because the dealer is providing a financial service to its customers that its customers want. And the customers are okay with this so long as they think there's very little risk, very little danger in it. And I'm getting the best service that my dealer can possibly provide. And so go ahead and, and, and you know, uh, blow, blur the lines between ownership and reuse and all these other things so long as it benefits me. Where that all breaks down, obviously, is if you have these dealers like Lehman Brothers as a parent who have these these inherent kind of, you know, weird relationships and weird transactions embedded within their own practices that become dependent upon them, right? Lehman Brothers as a broker wasn't just using um, repledging collateral in a, in a few cases for its best customers. It was doing this in widespread fashion. In fact, you know, some of the studies that have gone back and looked at this, the very few studies that have gone back and looked at this have found that 85 to 90 per, 90% of U.S. treasuries in particular, U.S. treasuries that are posted by dealer customers get reused. So almost every treasury that comes in from hedge funds, dealers, other, you know, whatever dealer customers are, are putting up, they get repledged. And so a massive amount of what money dealers do in derivatives and all their market-making activities is funded and dependent upon collateral they don't own, they don't have title to, that they're reusing. And in fact, it's such, a, it's such a big deal that, again, going back to some of these few studies that have looked at this, the average U.S. Treasury, not only the 85 to 90% of them repledged, they're repledged somewhere between six and eight times on average. It means a single security gets, you know, there's multiples here. A single security gets reused six, seven, eight times 
that, you know, your dealer lends it to another dealer who lends it to another dealer who lends it to another dealer. And you have these long chains of a single collateral, all of which are intermixing together, creating this fuzzy ball of, you know, what is it? It's a collateral pool that nobody really has any idea how it operates or how it, how it you know, expands and contracts and all the sorts of inherent faults and problems that are, are that are that are obviously contained within it. It's very, it's a very weird, difficult situation. And yet, but you know, authorities, officials, the academic uh, community, they don't seem to really care all that much about it, even though they keep saying time and again, Hey, there might be a problem here. Hey, this might be something we need to look at. That's where I wanted to go next is the regulators. Cause that's part of our quote regulatory arbitrage in the presence of non-harmonized rehypothecation regimes. What you've just described, I don't, know, I, I don't know how the audience feels, but I feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, I feel uncomfortable completely with it, but if that is done by financial institutions and it's contained within the financial system, okay, you know, I'm kind of a laissez-faire guy and they're welcome to take on that risk and pay the price for that risk. The last 13 years, it seems like everyone else is paying the price, and that's the problem. Therefore, the regulators need to step in and do something about it. And so my question to you, Jeff, was going to be, do the regulators have data on this, and what do they think about it? It It sounds like somebody should be on top of this, and it should be a very big issue. You're exactly right. If, 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 if the consequences of the situation were limited to the customer and the dealer, right, then we would have absolutely, we wouldn't even be talking about this, right? We'd be, oh, boo-hoo, hedge funds lost some money, big deal. That's part of life. That's part of financial life. But that's not what happens, right? Sure, some hedge funds lose some money. Sure, some dealers lose some money. But by and large, what we're really talking about, as I said before, is this collateral, the way collateral is used underpins and supports the entire monetary system. So it's not like the consequences are limited to just the parties involved. In fact, all the money dealing activities that a dealer undertake in whatever market it might be, derivatives market, these massive hundreds of trillions of derivatives, the collateral is vital to that. And it's, it's reused, replagiary, hypothecated collateral. It's this, this, this uh, amorphous collateral ball that nobody can really get their hands around that supports the entire marketplace. And when we talk about Eurodollar University and, and the economic drag over the last 13 years, this is primarily what we mean, that this collateral situation is the biggest problem that we face. And yes, some authorities and some central bankers, mostly in Europe, forget the U.S., the American central bankers, you know, the Federal Reserve, they're way behind in all of this stuff. In Europe, at least, they, they're, they've been aware that, hey, these what they call securities funding transactions are, you know, hey, we need to pay attention to this. Oh, by the way, maybe this has become an even bigger problem because of QE, because what is QE doing? It's removing even more treasuries from this big amorphous collateral ball that the amorphous collateral ball can't use. And so there, there's lots of, you know, picking around the edges. And what you said before, Emil, is exactly right. What's really frustrating, and for, for me in particular, about all this is that they have all sorts of data. They have call reports, confidential data streams, confidential reports that they can be, you know, I mean, look, they're regulars. They can knock on the door of any bank and say, hey, open your books. Let me see your trading desk. They, they have all sorts of information at their fingertips. Yet when they, the few instances where they actually try to gather and look at it, 
they have no idea what they're looking at. So they don't even have a frame of reference to interpret it the proper way. Meanwhile, those of us out here who have no access to confidential data, have no access to you know, any real data, we're putting all these pieces together and saying, look, this is actually pretty simple when you actually, when you get, when you understand it intuitively and, and think about how it's actually taking place, this really isn't that hard to figure out. Collateral itself acts like a currency system. And when you realize that, you start to get the data and put some of these pieces together. Like I said before, you know, rehypothecation and, and uh, long chains of collateral, six to eight times multiplication, these kinds of things, you understand that this is a primary weakness for the global monetary system, the non-harmonization of rehypothecation. Well, in our YouTube channels and in where else and on Twitter, our audience interacts with us and sometimes they pose questions or send us documents to look at. And one of our audience members told us, hey, look, Miss Isabel Schnabel, a member of the uh, executive board of the European Central Bank, is talking about this. Jeff, you must be happy because she was talking about collateral scarcity. So were you happy with what she had to say? I was glad that she was saying, and I'm absolutely uh, thankful that uh, the readers have, have, you know, had sent us along these suggestions and saying, hey, keeping an eye on what's going on in the system and what's going on, especially in the official world. And so, yeah, in one sense, it was good that we had a European regular, a high European, I mean, a member of the board, uh, board of the ECB saying, Hey, scarcity in collateral, that's, you know, that's a good thing because it's not something you would expect uh, officials to have said, at least over the, you know, the intervening decade or so. And so it has become more of a topic of conversation, but where that always goes wrong is that, again, being unable to interpret the implications of what they're actually saying. And so as far as she was saying, look, um, as a lot of other central bankers and authorities have done this year, they say that we've done a really good job here. Yes, there's a collateral scarcity, but we've gotten some, we've figured out some ways to work around it. In Europe, they have uh, what is this, the APP, which is essentially a collateral lending program where, yes, because of quantitative easing, the central bank ends up owning a lot of securities that the market can no longer, no longer use, silo as they call it. And therefore, the ECB says, well, we have all these securities, the market may need them, so we'll lend them out to the marketplace. And that's, a, that's supposed to be a positive. Another one she mentioned specifically was that securities lending business, private securities lending business, this rehypothecation and repledging among dealers between dealers that we just talked about, that has perked back up again over the last couple of years because of this collateral scarcity issue. As if that's a positive thing. Why Without isn't it? Tell us. Why, why isn't it? Because if you lengthen these collateral chains through these securities lending business practices, what are you actually doing? Yes, you're expanding the, the you're, you're creating a, a larger multiple that allows a fewer, a lesser amount of collateral to be used in more transactions, right? So it sounds like it's a monetary looseness, but it's a fragile way of, of conducting expansion in the monetary system because it's dependent upon, at its root, fewer and fewer uh, collateral in private hands. And, you know, lending through central banks is not a perfect or even a good substitute for the dynamic collateral marketplace. So what she's saying is that, yes, we've seen collateral shortages, but we've also seen the market work around them in doing so in some, mostly in a lot of the same ways as the system had done before Lehman Brothers. And so we're bringing back some of these things that we may not want to really be bringing back, right? We don't want 
the collateral system, the central point component of the global monetary system to be dependent upon even less collateral at its root, it, to be more expanded, to be more inflated. You know, it's, it's, it's introducing the same kinds of dangers that we saw in 2008. And again, in March 2020, you know, she may not be aware of it, but what happened in March 2020 was the same thing as, as Lehman Brothers in 2008 in much the same way where the collateral multiplication process shrunk, causing inordinate financial damage all over the world. So, you know, more private uh, uh, repropothecation and repledging over the last couple of years because of a safe asset shortage, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's inherent risk being built up. And then, of course, these clueless central bankers being unaware when it goes awry. Well, we're going to continue our idea of this hypothetical cocktail party that we're at because, of course, economists don't get invited to cocktail parties. But if they did, we could bring up this subject. Well, what's one subject you don't want to bring up because you're going to get thrown out right away? You would sooner bring up politics than raise the idea that inflation is not accelerating as much as being, as being conveyed in the media. And that's where we're going to turn to in part two of episode 39. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you a central banker? Do you celebrate monetary accomplishments before they occur? Do you struggle incredibly promising to be irrational? Then the new Clench 5000 from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you. Yes, yeah, simply place this refashioned stainless steel mousetrap in your trousers or pencil skirt for your next press conference. Nary a hair will move on your head, nor an eyebrow raise in confidence. Nary a smile will cross your face before the policy transmits successfully through the economy. Rest easy that your days of premature celebration are over with the knowledge that the Clench 5000 is hair trigger sensitive. The Clench 5000, new from Eurodollar Enterprises. Everyone believes in accelerating inflation. You believe in accelerating inflation. But after this episode, you're going to have some questions that confront the media narrative that's being presented to you. And you're going to wonder if actually inflation is as bad as you're hearing about in the financial media. Jeff, I'm going to read a quote from Kenneth Galbraith, and I'm sure you've heard this one. And it's something that you're probably thinking about because of how short the financial memory is. Here, quote, contributing to and supporting this euphoria are two further factors little noted in our time or in past times. The first is the extreme brevity of financial memory. Financial memory. So, Jeff, you must be gobsmacked how short financial memory is because you are now writing about inflation and about a phenomenon that just took place three years ago, and it seems like everyone's forgotten about it. Maybe that because, uh, you know, how many people were aware of it back in, in, you know, we're talking about 2017, late 2017, early 2018. The last time we heard, oh, the economy's roaring, the economy's doing really good, it's going to be doing so well, so much money printing, so much fiscal stimulus, so much excess, that it's going to become inflationary. And it may not, it may, may be that most of the public who don't really pay as close attention as, as you or I do, maybe doesn't connect the dots between that time period and this time period because it doesn't really sound like today is any way like 2017, 2018. But in a lot of respects, it's being talked about in the same ways, especially in the financial media, which continues to write story after story about 
inflation is coming, inflation is coming, it's going to be too big, it's going to be too much, it's going to be excessive. Well, the name of the block piece is called Inflation Hysteria Number Two Tips and Swaps. I told you to title it Inflation Hysteria Two in Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. But okay, let's turn to tips. In swaps, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> I think that's what we're Yes, <laughs> I love it. We'll have Sigourney Weaver, and she's on the spaceship, and then we'll have some sort of swap curve. Yeah. Negative You're, swap spreads are, are absolutely an alien. <laughs> oh, well, that's the whole show right there, Jeff. We should cut it. We should go and start, uh, go to Hollywood and produce something. Tips. We're going to first turn to tips. I feel like you're missing a letter here. Are you referring to Q-tips or what is it? What tips? What are tips? Tips are the treasury market that, get, that the government pays you based on the CPI. So it's inflation-protected securities. So the T, treasury inflation-protected securities. And so you're betting on essentially what is the CPI going to do over the duration of the instrument that you own? So if it's a five-year tips over the five-year, what is the CPI going to average? Because that's what the government's going to pay you. And so and then, it's really a way for the market to say, this is what we think the CPI is going to be over the, t over the future. And in 2018, 2017, let's see, yeah, let's talk about 2017. Tips started to move. Uh, but tell us a little bit about when they moved, how much they moved. They moved up, signaling some inflation, but was it blown out of proportion? Yeah, they moved up and, and they got to points where, you know, uh, especially later in 2017, where the five-year tips and then the 10-year tips and the five-year, five-year forward inflation rate, these are all just measures of uh, market, what's the market saying inflation is going to be over the future, what we would expect it to be over the future period. So the tips market said, you know, inflation seems to be more probably, uh, we're, we're more probably going to get some inflation, more inflation over the future than we thought, you know, a couple of years ago at the low levels in 2015 and 2016. And you know, the, the break-even points, which are the, the, in the tips market, it's what the real yield is compared to the nominal treasury of the same maturity, which is a, that exact measure for what is inflation going to be at that particular time, uh, what the market's saying inflation is gonna be at that particular time. And so break-even rates got to rise throughout 2017 to the point where they're at multi-year highs, which sounds tremendous, right? We, multi, this is the highest it's been since 2014. You know, three years, we haven't seen inflation, we haven't seen the markets think of, of coming inflation at this rate since 20, in three years. It, it sounds really impressive, it sounds like a really big deal, which is what started off, what really began this period of what I call inflation hysteria, because it was seemed like, the way it was written, that yes, the bond market, which had always been the one holdout against all these inflationary scenarios we keep saying, we keep hearing about, all of a sudden, the bond market's agreeing, and the bond market's, the treasury market's starting to buy into this inflation stuff. Here are break-evens at multi-year highs, so maybe there is something going on here. Maybe this is kind of moving in the right direction. At least that's what it sounded like. But it really didn't get much higher than halfway to the average level of the 2003 to 2013 period. So it was only about half as much of inflation. Well, that's why we call it inflation hysteria, right? Because, and that, that's really making more out of what was really a very small change. And yes, inflation expectations rose in the bond market, but let's not get carried away. They didn't really rise. They just got less bad. Less bad is not the same thing as really good, right? If, if the bond market is saying, 
in 2015 and 16, we don't see much inflation at all. And then that, that kind of, you know, globally synchronized growth, things start to get a little better. The bond markets finally said, what it really said was, okay, we don't think it's going to be as deflationary as it looked a couple years ago. That's not the same thing at all, but yeah, that's not how it was written. Again, all you, you saw headlines of, oh, inflation expectations, they're breaking out, tips breaking out, multi-year highs. Inflation is definitely coming when from a proper historical perspective, especially when you bring in other markets like swaps and other things, what you saw was it really was a very relatively minor improvement. And it wasn't really an improvement at all. It was just a, it's a relative change. Let's talk about swaps. And I think the audience will be surprised. I was surprised that you aver that interest rate swaps are a more fundamental, a more key, integral component of the inflation picture than tips. But we never hear about interest rate swaps on you know, our flickering screens or when we're turning the pages of our uh, financial newspapers. Tell us a little bit about interest rate swaps what we saw in 2017, 2018. Well, interest rate swaps as opposed to the, tre- I mean, treasury market, you know, we talk about them all the time is that's what the monetary system, that's what the banks are telling us. Well, let's say it's, in, in markets like tips, there's lots of outside investors looking to invest. It's not necessarily harmonized as just the inside parts of the system telling us what the insides think, uh, what's, what's going on in the inside. Whereas interest rate swaps, that's not something a, even a sophisticated investor is really going to get involved in. What are interest rate swaps used for? They're primarily used as balance sheet tools by these large banks. And so if you're talking, if you're talking about a pure inside the shadows type of indication, interest rate swaps are one of the good ones because, again, that's the only people that are operating in that market, which is why you don't see it on CNBC or financial news channels because it has absolutely no, no, it has no use for any retail investor, even institutional investors in a lot of places. It is a more inside the inside baseball kind of an indication. And what interest rate swaps really told us, look, if you're going to, you're going to get involved in multi-billion dollar uh, fixed income pieces and you got to be able to hedge it, that's what really what interest rate swaps are for. You need to put these, put a balance sheet together and manage risks of your balance sheet. You need interest rate swaps to do that. And so, it's the market telling us back in 2017 and early 2018 that uh, same thing as tips, essentially. Yeah, there's, it's not as bad as it was a couple of years ago, but it's not really changing. It's certainly not a categorical shift into an inflationary acceleration, as everybody was talking about. And again, if you're putting together a, a bank portfolio or even just running a bank desk and you think inflation is your tr- primary risk, you better damn well believe that would be reflected in the swap price. Because everybody would be banging on that thing and we would see swap spreads and we'd see swap, you know, everything in the swap market shift into an inflationary mode. And that never happened. Again, all it was was a minor change, a minor, you could call it an improvement, but really a relative change from the lows of 2015-16, what we call euro dollar number three around here, in between that uh, into this reflation number three where the market said, yeah, it's not as bad as it was but it's not really good and it's not really, it doesn't represent a change. Okay. And the audience can see where we're going. Inflation hysteria, number one, an exploration of the upside, leaving the worst behind us, but it was presented as a 1970s inflationary conflagration. Here we are in the present day and we can see and hear some of the same things. So let's just talk about tips and swaps in the present day. How do they compare 
through a long-run history? How do they compare to inflation hysteria number one? Well, first of all, a lot of similarities, right? As you just pointed out, Emil, in tips, the break-even, especially the five-year break-even, just jumped a little bit. In fact, it jumped to the highest in a year and a half, which, of course, made lots of headlines. And it's, oh, my God, the, the bond market is buying this inflationary scenario. But the highest in a year and a half compares the current uh, break, inflation break-even with the middle of 2019. That's not exactly an inflationary period. So after all this trillions of money printing, after trillions in the federal government spending, after all this, all this noise, uh, uh, you know, uh, inflation is coming in every financial uh, publication around the world. Inflation expectations are essentially where they were last year. Which was, last year was not a very good year. Or as we call it around here, Euro dollar number four. So it got back to out of a complete wipeout, an economic shutdown, back to monetary disorder, constriction, and ill health. Yeah, so we went we, from the worst to just merely bad, right? <laughs> That's, it's a relative improvement, and it looks like it, inflation expectations are rising. But like 2017, it's a minor change, a minor shift, and a, not a categorical one. And as you were going, where you were going, Emil, was that, look, compared to 2017, we're in much worse shape. You know, inflation expectations are far lower, substantially lower now than they were at even some of the, the lowest points in 2017 in 2018. So we're not even to 2017 levels and already people are talking and screaming like it's inflation, it's inflation is coming, which is why we're calling this inflation hysteria number two, except inflation hysteria number two has even less going for it than inflation hysteria number one. And again, the point, the point we're trying to make here is inflation hysteria number one was, was in fact a hysteria. It was, there was never any real danger of inflation breaking out. And here we are supposedly in a similar situation in fact, we're in too much of a similar situation that it's, again, hysterical to think that inflation is going to break out from an even worse situation. We're going to transition to talking about nominal U.S. Treasuries rate, U.S. Treasury rates, but I just wanted to emphasize that nuance again. We're not saying that there isn't some sort of rebound and reflation. We're just saying it's overwrought. Let's talk about nominal U.S. Treasury rates right now. So this is the second article. Inflation hysteria number two, nominal UST. It was a blog post. December 8th is when it was posted. Alhambra Investments is the website. Jeff, you and just like we did with tips and swaps, you went back to 2017, 2018, and then we're going to compare to where we are in 2020. Tell us a little bit about the five-year, the 10-year, the spread between the two. Uh, in, in the past, and then we'll talk about the present. Well, the 10-year U.S. Treasury, the benchmark tenure, was really the big kind of, the, the finishing touch of what made inflation hysteria so hysterical. Because through, as 2017 developed, you know, globally synchronized growth, this inflation narrative, falling unemployment rate, uh, Janet Yellen talking about it, all these other things, you know, inflation is coming, hawkishness, uh, rising, into, you know, uh, Fed raising rates. The 10-year throughout 2017 basically said, nah, we're not really buying it. And so the 10-year kind of traded sideways throughout all of that stuff until December 2017. And December 2017 was important, especially in the current context, because that was the deficit busting, the deficit exploding tax cut and jobs act, which did explode the deficit and did increase the level of treasury. And for a time, especially after the bill passed both the House and the Senate and therefore was clear to, for President Trump to sign, 
the 10-year treasury yield started to rise too. And it was, again, it was this, oh my God, the bond market is really buying this inflation story. And that's what really made it hysterical. Because for the first time in a long time, even central bankers could say, look, interest rates are rising. Inflation expectations are rising. Nominal rates are moving. Things are moving in our direction. We actually have some evidence for it for once. And it really did seem like if you only focused on these relative minor changes, that yes, maybe there, this inflation scenario really was plausible. But again, as we said in tips and swaps, it wasn't really that much of a move. Yes, the nominal rates rose, but the bond market said, Maybe this tax cut and jobs act thing will put everything over the top. Maybe it will be too excessive. And there's a small probability it does lead to a little bit more inflation and growth or whatever. But it was never anything more than that. The bond market was saying, yes, a small change in relative probabilities. And the reason, the, the way we saw that was, as you pointed out, Emil, the yield curve itself, the yield curve shape. Even as nominal rates were rising late 2017 on into 2018, the curve was flattening because short-term rates are moving far more than long-term rates, which is the opposite of what we would expect to find in an actual inflationary scenario where the bond market was agreeing with it. We would expect longer-term rates to rise much faster than shorter-term rates, especially when you look at what the Federal Reserve was doing at that time with more targeted, careful rate hikes rather than you know the Greenspan rate hike every meeting. And so the long end should have risen much quicker much farther than the short end. And in fact, it was the opposite. So the yield curve should steepen in inflationary scenario and instead it was flattening. Tell us a little bit about why the long end should be moving versus the short end. Why should the longer be moving? Is it because uh, the two ends represent different things in the, yeah, on the curve? Yeah, not only is there just maturity, you have to, you have to factor into uh, you know, calendar length maturity differences, but they're also, you know, what is driving things, what is driving investment factors and even balance sheet, uh, balance sheet considerations at the longer end versus the shorter end? Within the treasury bills, you have very money-like uh, behavior. It's, it's, it's almost money alternatives, especially to short-term bills. And so they're very more attuned to, to specifics about monetary policy and those things, uh, current monetary, monetary conditions. Whereas the longer part of the yield curve is more focused on the consequences of the short run. So if, if, if low interest rates, as we're commonly taught to believe, do stimulate the economy, then we would expect that low interest rates would stay low at the short end, and then the long end would look at that and say the consequences of low interest rates are going to be inflationary, accelerating growth, which means higher, interest, higher bond yields, higher uh, credit uh, rates uh, in, the investment, in the investment part of the economy because the economy is getting better. There's more opportunity. Again, getting back to interest rate fallacy, you know, when things are going well, rates rise, not fall. So we'd expect that in this situation that going especially from a zero interest rate policy to an inflationary recovery, the yield curve would dramatically steepen as the long end it maps out the, the probable consequences of success at the short end. And that wasn't happening. It was the opposite. The long end was resisting what the central bankers were saying was success. Because the long end was saying, we don't see a categorical change in economic and financial condition. Instead, we see, okay, maybe there's a little bit of improvement, but it's nothing like what Janet Yellen and Jay Powell was saying. And that's why the short end moved faster than the long end. The long end was saying, look, you've got this all wrong. It's not really coming. It's, there's, there's really no inflation. There's no growth. There's no, no recovery here. Let's fast forward to today, where what you just described, what we wanted to see, 
is happening, Jeff. The long end is moving faster than the short end of the U.S. Treasury curve. That's good news. Not I mean, look, in, in, in what's happened, especially since September, they're moving in opposite directions. Bill yields have creep, crept down while nominal yields have moved up. So it's, it actually seems like, hey, isn't this the, great, the greatest thing ever? The bond market yield curve is steepening. But so it's not, though. That's what you're saying. Right. Well, I said, yes, but it's steepening, it's, but it's not the inflationary case. It's not. It, we're not seeing the inflationary scenario that we would think. That's right. So would, I'm, I'm sorry. We would. We should be seeing them both rising, but the longer end rising faster. But what? That's the effect. The results seems good, but if you look at the details, it's because the bills are falling. Is that correct? The short term. That's part of it, and the other part of it is, I would say, is that the long end isn't really rising. We're, we're not really mean? into a situation where nominal yields are moving up all that much. They're, they're not their lows that they were earlier this year, but it's not. And if you look, especially look at a longer term chart, you can see how yeah. small. It's no, nothing it's, more than a market fluctuation. It's, a flat it's not line. the yield curve steepening. That's just the mathematics of the difference between the short and the long run. It's in, in functional terms, the nominal treasury yields are saying nothing much has changed since March when we got the big downdraft. So it's not really inflation, it's not even really reflation. It's sort of things aren't as bad as they were a couple months ago, which again is not the same thing as, oh my God, inflation's right around the corner. The 10-year as of yesterday was at 0.89 and the five-year U.S. Treasury uh, bond was at 0.37. This is I would, yeah, we, no, that's, that's very there's low. Nothing and the good, best, right. There's nothing good associated with those numbers. There's, there's no break. There's no inflation. There's no destructive, you know, the dollar crashing scenario, all of that kind of stuff. And again, that gets back to why we're calling this inflation hysteria. And I would argue that the hysteria isn't the public. The hysteria isn't the, you know, even the, in a lot of these marketplaces, the markets in my mind are being far more rational about what's going on. Even stocks are being far more rational about what's going on. It's almost entirely the financial media trying to sell you a story, a fictional story that, you know, most people are just like, what? Really? There's this inflation coming? We don't see it. Jeff, let's talk about uh, another way of looking at this issue, inflation. Let's talk about oil. And that's very important. As you write in your article, which article is? It's called Inflation Hysteria Number 3. Is that right? No, it's Inflation Hysteria Number 2, Article 3, WTI. And you posted on December 9th. It's Alhambra Investments. WTI, of course, stands for West Texas Intermediate. And as you write in your article, very important to inflation readings. So we're going to do the same thing that we've done for our other measures. Let's talk about what happened in 2017 and 2018 and what happened more recently. And something very interesting and historic did happen to American oil in 2017 that really blew the wind in the sails of the inflation hysteria narrative. Well, go, going back before 2017, remember we had this, what everybody said was an oil glut. And there was an oil glut from you know the oil price crashing in 2014, 15, and 16, but it wasn't a supply glut so much as it was a demand glut. The global economy fell off, and especially in emerging markets, which use a lot of oil, the demand for oil fell off quite a bit. And so we had this supply glut hang, uh, hangover left into 20, late 2016 and into 2017, which showed up in the WTI futures curve as contango. Contango, as we've talked about before, is the futures curve shape that incentivizes more oil going into storage rather than being used. 
And so contango is a, is a signal in the futures market that says not enough demand or, or too little supply, whatever the, whatever the imbalance is, there's too much oil going into storage. In the scenario of globally synchronized growth, what we would expect to see is WTI, WTI futures going from contango into backwardation, which incentivizes using oil because there's oil needed to be used, demand rising, economic growth, those kinds of things. And in the domestic market, we had always had this prohibition against U.S. producers exporting oil, which goes back to the 1970s, oil embargoes, OPEC, all that stuff. The U.S. didn't produce enough of its own energy, especially crude oil. So the U.S. government said, look, we don't even, we don't even make enough for ourselves. We're not going to let you export it. And fast forward into the 2010s, shale oil boom in those kinds of places. All of a sudden, the U.S. makes tons more oil than we necessarily need. And the U.S. government in around, I believe, it was 2014 or 2015 said you could start exporting oil again, which just happened to really pick up right in the middle of 2017, just in time for this inflation narrative. And with more oil in the United States produced in the U.S. going outside of it, it helped rebalance the supply situation, which knocked the curve out of contango into backwardation, allowing the WTI price to fly much higher and in, in the context of what we just talked about in the other, the other segments, in this segment too, inflation. It's another market that seemed to climb right on board this inflation narrative. Inflation is obviously coming because look at oil prices. Look at the futures curve into backwardation. And then let's – so, but it was, wasn't it very high or what told you in 2017 that uh, it wasn't something to be convinced by or was it? A, a something that was definitely in the, the the ledger balance of inflation back then. Was there anything dissuading you from just that oil market in believing the narrative? It was well, like we said before, in tip swaps and nominal treasuries, it was an improvement, but it wasn't necessarily a categorical change. And again, as we just said, it was aided in large part because of this change, this artificial and non-economic change in allowing U.S. oil to be exported overseas, which kind of changed the balance of markets outside the U.S. So it, it kind of amplified the move in WTI, which, of course, is a big component, or at least it becomes a big component of the CPI through gasoline prices. And so, it, you know, it was... Yes, it was reflationary, obviously, but it wasn't a, a complete change toward the inflationary scenario. I mean, look, oil prices never got much higher than what, uh, 60, in the 60s in 2017, almost, I believe, maybe touching 70 in, 20, in 2018, which is nowhere near the $100, $100 barrel of oil that we used to have before the euro dollar number three in 2013, 2014. So it was, again, another one that's, a minor change part way up, you know, not all the way back and not even really getting close to all the way back. What about present day? Stocks, supply, demand, uh, anything there and price that suggests inflation is about to take off? Or is it again the story of things are not as bad and things are better, but no need to be hysterical about it? Yeah, and not, again, like we said before, compared today to 2017, it's, it's significantly worse today. There's significantly less underpinning the inflation story today, especially where oil is concerned, because uh, storage levels are at, are at record, are record highs for this time of year, both in crude and gasoline, as well as you look at exports, which was a major contributing factor to rebalancing the domestic market in 2017. Exports are down 20-some percent 
from where they were in March, and they flatlined it at this at this rate. And you know what you're showing here is gasoline demand inside the United States. It has never recovered, and it may not look as as bad as it as that actually is. Ever since the week of June 19, gasoline demand, which is you know product supply, gasoline supplied, is the U.S. EIA's way of saying this is what must have been demanded of of this particular uh, petroleum product. It's about 17% lower at this time of year than it had been in previous years. 17% gasoline, something fundamental like that. So you no wonder, you know, uh, crude uh, inventories at record highs, even though crude pro uh, crude production continues to be about 16, 17% lower than it had been in March. We have an economic situation where everything is cut back so much, it still hasn't balanced the oil market. And yet, oil prices are up modestly. I mean, they've gone from the, the high 30s to the almost the high 40s, which, I mean, that sounds again, oh, is that inflationary? That's a, that's a pretty big move in WTI. But you look at it in the horse historical context, go back to 2017, 2018, we were talking about the 70s. Go back to 2013, 2014, it was $100 a barrel. So we're making a lot out of what is a relatively minor move. And as I just said before, some of these markets, including WTI, are, are actually behaving pretty rationally because fundamentally there really is no reason for oil to be up as high as it is. And what is really going on is this inflation narrative that that's instead, instead of being premised on something like globally synchronized growth as inflation hysteria number one is, it's almost all about vaccines and coming fiscal spending and more QE and all these other things. It's really based on even less than there was three years ago. What we really need is more credit, more money in the economy. And we're going to discuss that in part three, because it looks like there was some good news recently reported about the world's biggest consumer and credit demand. But it'll turn out that there's actually more to this story, and it's not good news. Neil, I think this we're, we're going to talk about here is we need to cancel student loans, right? I mean, that's that's the big thing nowadays. Uh, students who have gone to uh, higher education, university colleges, have racked up enormous amounts of debts through no fault of their own. They must uh, they must be given some kind of debt relief because it's an economic thing. You know, this debt is holding back uh, potential consumers from being able to and not I mean just straight up uh, live their lives and be able to do things that the prior generations have been able to do. But why are we canceling student debt? Why are debt levels so high? Why is it so far out of whack compared to maybe what the actual uh, actual economic situation is as far as it, as far as the labor market goes? So the article in question is polar opposite sides of consumer credit end up pointing in the same place, jobs. That was posted on December 7th at the Alhambra Investments blog. And you make the point that there's a problem there is a problem. It's a huge problem. In fact, when you look at consumer credit, there's an elephant in consumer credit. It's not what you think. In fact, consumer credit is, at a, is an all-time high or near an all-time high, an extreme high. I think it's, you know, since 2008, consumer credit overall, according to the Federal Reserve's numbers, has grown something like 70%, which sounds like, you know, hey, this, this narrative that we're in a credit bubble stimulated by the Federal Reserve's low interest rates, therefore, it's coming out in consumer credit. And look at, you know, look at what's going on there. It's a big, huge problem. Jeff, non-revolving credit increased $12.7 in October, but that is mostly government funding to what all appearances is unproductive investment in college education. 
but revolving credit decreased by 5.5 billion. And that's not just the one month trend. There's a, there's a huge difference between what's going on with the government. But the government doesn't care about economic factors. The government only cares about demand. And so therefore it's going to supply as much credit as, as, as is demanded. Whereas on the flip side, when you remove the government elephant from the consumer credit figures, what you find is, unfortunately, uh, there isn't been a lot of consumer credit. And I say unfortunately because it's as a debt, you know, debt is an essential component to the modern financialized uh, economy. And you look at resolve, revolving consumer credit by contrast, and it is a huge contrast. In fact, the resolving consumer credit balances in the aggregate continue to decline, even into, I believe these numbers are for October 2020, which, w which is supposed to be a recovery. It's supposed to be the economy getting back. What you see is revolving consumer credit as opposed to government student loans, government credit through student loans, is that this is what consumers are telling you they believe is going on in the U.S. economy. It's not, it's not debt charge-off. It's not the lower levels of, of the income tiers that are reducing their aggregate credit balances. It's higher, higher levels of income tiers that are saying, we're so concerned about our future we're going to pay down or, or, or not even take on new, new revolving credit balances. And so it's this dichotomy between the government supplying whatever is demanded in terms of consumer loans, whereas in revolving credit, consumers are saying, we don't want to borrow because we're scared. We're, we're afraid that we don't know what our job situation is going to be in the near term or intermediate term. We're acting in, out of prudence. So the government is imprudent, student loans, uh, College-age kids rack up more debt than they really need to. And oh, by the way, then they graduate into a jobs market that is so awful, they, could, they have no chance. They got all this debt hoping to get a really, really good job when there are very few really good jobs available. So the opposite ends of the consumer credit spectrum telling you essentially the same thing, which is labor market, jobs. It's really not good. And how, what about the recent uh, jobs data? What have you seen there? Have we seen any improvement or improvement at a rate that would is accelerating or is it still decelerating? No, and that's a good point, Emil, because I, I think we do need to be clear about this. It's not like the jobs market is contracting again. It's not like we've gone into re-recession. But in some ways, you don't need to. It, it, this is just as bad because we're already in recession. We already had the massive economic hole earlier this year, and now we're trying to climb our way out of it. And so the rate that we climb our way out of it is, is everything. That's, that's all that's really important. And if the rate is not sufficient, that means we're going to be stuck in recession for a prolonged period, which is, again, what the revolving consumer credit is telling you. Consumers are worried about the labor market situation lingering forward too much longer. And when we look at things like jobless claims or even just the payroll numbers from last month, in the last couple of months, what we see is that, look, no, the economy stopped recovering at the V-shaped rebound reopening frenzy rate that it had initially done, you know, back in uh, May and, and June. Somewhere around June and July, things radically changed. The economy stopped rebounding at the same robust rate that it had initially. And ever since then, as we've seen in the labor market, especially jobless claims, which, which absolutely exploded last week, they're up to 850,000 initial claims which is an enormous number. So what we're seeing in the labor market is, yes, it's improving, but these improvements are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and the rate of improvement overall has gotten to the point where we're kind of stalling out and stagnating. We're not falling back just yet, but it's at a rate where right now in, in November and December 2020, 
we're in worse shape than we were at the worst part of the Great Recession. And that, I think, should really open people's eyes, understanding that here we are nine months later, and we're still materially worse in the labor market than it ever had gotten in 2008 and 2009. So the initial claims for unemployment insurance had been in the 700,000s, had been getting smaller, then it jumped up. Is there any word from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or whoever calculates these, uh, these numbers? Is there, was it a uh, data discontinuity? Was it a catch-up on states that hadn't been reporting? Uh, or was there any, or is it something worse? Well, a lot of people are attributed to the reimposed restrictions, lockdowns, and things like that. And I think that that's absolutely part of it. But I think that's that's overdone, too. I think the economic damage that we're seeing in the labor market is economic damage. It's not artificial restrictions. You know, you know, talk about the local pub or the local restaurants that are suffering, and they are. But that's not really what we're seeing in the labor market numbers. The labor market numbers are saying that this is economic damage across a wide swath of industries, including many industries who, who aren't nominally affected by these renewed social distancing and, and other restrictions against indoor dining, for example. That's not what you're seeing in jobless claim numbers. You're seeing companies that have held out for nine months expecting the economy to recover, finally saying, look, I don't see it. Things slow down June and July. It's, it looks like we're not good. It's not really going to get much better. It's, it, we, we've held on as long as we can. You know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to give you my pink, you're going to give you your pink slip because I just can't hang on anymore. It's economic damage that is built up because, yes, the economy is improving, but it's not improving at anywhere close to a sufficient rate. And bringing this back to our earlier discussions about inflation, how the hell are you going to get inflation when we're stuck in a labor market that is fully and completely deflationary? Jeff, are there any final words that you wanted to share with the audience this week? No, I think that's really the, the overall thing is that, uh, you know, when we look at the inflation story, especially how it's characterized overall in the media, it's, it's premature celebration. And that's really my point in bringing this back to 2017, 2018 was like, hey, We've done this before. Pretty much, you know, you spiked the ball way too early in 2017 and 2018. And back then, you actually had some things going that at least plausibly seems to be going in your favor. In every single category now in 2020, you have even less. In 2017, 2018 did not lead to the inflationary breakout that everybody promised. And now that you have even less going for it, we're, now we're supposed to, oh, this time, oh, this time it will work? Come on, it's, it's, it's you know... Again, that's why I say, you know, for markets, they're behaving far more rationally. And I think for, uh, especially when you look at some of the public surveys, which we might get into next week, you know, there's really not this widespread belief in inflation because how can there be? We are in a recession right now, a recession whose recovery has stalled out, as I just said, at a, at a, for the labor market at a, at a place that was worse than the worst spot of the Great Recession. That's, that's not inflation. There's no inflation indicated anywhere here. Let's take it up again next week. It'll be our final show for the year. I'll uh, talk to you next week, Jeff. All right, Emil. Take care. <laughs>